And I think both public health and the healthcare system or the health ecosystem, I would sort of think of it that way, all have a role to play. And that ecosystem can consist of the primary care practitioners, the more tertiary, secondary, acute care, but long-term care, home care, that whole continuum of the health system that supports individuals and supports populations, all the way from really health promotion to prevention, of course, to actual then what we call more downstream treatments and supporting people if they actually are suffering from the acute impact of some of the severe weather events. If we use that analogy of that up and down stream, so if you include, if you think of a stream, public health is at the top end trying to ensure no one falls in. But if someone is in the stream, they need to be supported. You may throw them a life jacket or you may have to pull them out from the stream. You may have to actually resuscitate them in some way. And that is absolutely crucial. But every aspect of all the work up and down that stream are equally important. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to another episode of the Find My Vaccine podcast. My name is Aaron Sahota. I'm your host, pharmacist here in Vancouver, BC. Well, Today, we have a very special guest with us, all the way from Ottawa. When you think about public health, for those of you who've been following the pandemic, those of you who've been at the front lines have almost certainly heard her name and have probably seen her on national television. To meet the challenges of this fall and winter, let's recommit to not lose the gains we've made as we resume in-person activities. Although no individual layer of protection is perfect, when used consistently and together, Vaccine Plus layers can provide excellent protection against COVID-19. We have with us today, Dr. Teresa Tan, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer. We're going to have a conversation with her and uh, taking a few steps back, understanding, you know, what inspired her to get into this line of practice. Also understanding what you as frontline healthcare providers can do. How do you synergize with public health and vice versa? There's some real opportunities that this pandemic has highlighted and unmet needs that we need to look at exploring and bridging. As part of our faculty that we've had as podcast, we're very excited to have Dr. Teresa Tam. Thanks so much for being on the Find My Vaccine podcast. How are you? I'm great. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having me. My name is Dr. Teresa Tam, and it's great to be here. Excellent. Yeah, so I want to get right into it. And I think our listeners are very eager to learn more about Dr. Teresa Tam. So tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Do you have a secret talent, a hobby, maybe a sticker collection that we don't know about? Well, before I go there, I just want to acknowledge that I am living and working in Ottawa, the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. I know that healthcare providers who might be listening across Canada, really have a, a very important role to play in promoting diversity and an inclusive, culturally safe and trauma-informed health systems. I just want to acknowledge that, first of all. And I have a lot of different hobbies, actually, and I'm a classical musician. Um, wow. I, I run, <laughs> not, not very fast, but I have a, you know, a knack of, persevering with whatever it is that I'm doing so I can run fairly long distances. 
Well, I mean, I'm sure you guys did not know that about Dr. Tam. Of course, you only know about it by listening to this podcast. So we appreciate you sharing that. I'm, I'm a bit of a runner myself. I've, I've been trying to get back into it. And the pandemic, to be very honest, it slowed me down in terms of my physical activity. It's really difficult to go back into that routine. But once you're in routine, it's easier. But definitely has been a challenge from my perspective. All right. So, you know, helping us understand about looking back at your childhood, what inspired you to go into public health? And tell us maybe briefly about your journey from being a healthcare provider to the shift to where you are today in public health? Well, I'm sure each of us have very personal journeys. And in my childhood, I loved sciences. I think that's the first thing. I loved any living thing like biology, most of all, and chemistry, but more in the biochemistry sort of things. I think that's basically how I started thinking about going into medicine. At that point in time, there was actually quite much fewer women in medicine and certainly far fewer racialized individuals who are in the profession. So it seemed very exciting at the time. And I thought it would open lots of doors to do a lot of different things. So that's really how I started, you know, at school, thinking about going to medical school. I knew being a musician would be a much harder thing to do, put it this way. So I was a very practical youngster. When I finished medical school and I finished what we call house jobs, which is like internship in the United Kingdom in England, I moved to Canada and I chose to do a residency in pediatrics and mostly because I like kids and I like working with them and they're very inspiring. Basically, I just love working with children and I like the atmosphere of a children's hospital and my colleagues. Um, I got interested really in vaccinology and the application of vaccinations. And that's how I initially put my foot in the door of public health. And I got a job as a field epidemiologist with Health Canada. That was my first public health uh, job. And that was very exciting because it included investigating outbreaks on the ground. And actually, I forgot a bit of my um, career history, which is I subspecialize in pediatric infectious disease. So I was interested in all types of viruses and, and any microorganism, basically. And so it was a really good fit. After SARS in 2003, I switch completely into public health and focus on populations instead of individual kids. Like you say, each individual's journey is a little bit different. And you mentioned, so by training your pediatric infectious disease specialist, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Srinmurthy, who is one of our faculty. Yeah. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. And we also had Dr. Brian Conway, and he told me to say this to you, is you may have been one of his residents at some point. Why? Well, um came out of the same program as uh, written okay, okay. in uh, UBC at the oh, BC Children's okay. Hospital and probably trained under similar mentors. It's a very small world, pediatric infectious disease. I think the important message for you know early or mid-career health providers is just to be open to the possibilities in front of you. I didn't set out to be the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, obviously. And I thought of myself as a specialist and, in fact, quite ultra-specialized 
And now I'm the broadest, most generalist, you know, in the most generalized field in the country, I think. Let's talk a little bit about that because the profile and importance of public health and we really kind of focuses on this podcast through that lens. The role of public health has risen with the pandemic. And I think, as you mentioned, you hold a very unique role with the position you're in. From a personal standpoint, how do you deal with being a very public face for this pandemic and the pressures that come with it, for example, from the media, as well as the intersection of, um, you know, good science and politics? In addition, being female and, as you mentioned, uh, from a visible minority and really being thrust into this, I guess, national public leadership role, because I don't think in med school or in pharmacy school or in nursing school, we're taught how to really navigate some of the complex relationships and decision making that comes with the role you're in. Well, I think during our training, we learn to listen and take really good histories and uh, work, do problem solving and marry the art of medicine, I think, with the science of medicine as well. So I think in some ways, those are the sort of foundational building blocks. And we deal with some very difficult situations as um, clinicians uh, dealing with life and death situations. So you know, we've been through a fair bit of training or boot camp, as it were, in our early years. I certainly feel extremely humbled and privileged to be in this position at this point in time during collective response to what is really the biggest pandemic of the century. And who wouldn't be humbled by this virus, right? It is um, unbelievable in terms of it's uh, not just biological, but social and economic impacts. Being in the public, I kind of came with the territory of the job. It was sort of in my job description to communicate with the public, but I never really imagined it to be at this level of intensity or visibility where you're in front of the, the camera uh, for several times a week. And it has continued, maybe not as frequently, but continued for over two and a half years. And so that's a pretty intense pace, which I didn't sort of envisage when I first got into the job. But it's also pretty amazing to be speaking to the prime minister and the cabinet. That's not something that everybody does in, under, under such incredible circumstances and so frequently. Nothing really trains you for that, except for my, you know, quite considerable number of years in the public health and policy making. Uh, domain. I think as a woman from a racialized community, a racialized group, there has been some very difficult moments. So similar to other visible leaders and other public health officials, you know, you have Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, for example, we've all experienced a certain level of harassment, uh, lots of challenges contending with mis and disinformation, and the incredible politicization, of course, not just in Canada, but globally and in, in the United States, which is just next door to us, the politicization of public health and public health measures. And on top of that is the first pandemic really in the social media age where information, including mis- and disinformation, spreads really faster than the virus. So it has been a lot to take in and a lot to uh, sort of learn as I'm going along every single day. Yes, that's one of the really great things about being in public health and, of course, in this job in particular is that 
there's never a single day where you haven't learned something new and adapted your response or sort of essentially grow as a person as well. And, and thank you for sharing that because like you say, some things you're not trained for in school and you adapt and learn as you, you progress through the role. On the other hand, I think you, you touched on a couple of interesting points. One is being the politicization of the pandemic. And we had one guest from the United States, Dr. Elena Wynn, and she has commented about you know mandates and are we talking about more than just going against a mandate, but talking about freedoms and rights. And it's kind of this conversation that's really blown up and we're still seeing in some respects. And we had Dr. Bonnie Henry on our podcast. So she shared some of the same sentiments from the lens of being a female and just some of the challenges on a day-to-day basis that unfortunately you and her have faced. But certainly, I mean, we appreciate your service to the country. And I, I also think there's people who probably are watching every word that comes out of your mouth when you're doing a press release to see they're hanging by where things are headed. And it's, I'm sure, difficult to communicate with so many changing circumstances and variables. Yeah, I was going to say a major shout out to Canadians or people in this country, young and seniors or spectral society have really done very well. And the vast majority of people have followed public health advice. And I actually think it's the people in this country, as well as our greater social cohesion compared to some of the other countries have really helped us pull through to where we're at now in in the pandemic. So I think the incredible support for each other, the communities helping each other out, most certainly felt at the beginning, really has been tremendous. And I think, you know, I've been able to just really focus on the task at hand. You know, how do I cope? Of course, I focus. I'm a pretty calm person. But at the same time, I can't just put my head down and be blinkered to outright discrimination and racism. I can use my platform to call out on racism and any other form of stigma and discrimination, which of course is very much alive in Canada as it is in all other countries. But on the whole, I think we've been, I'm really grateful to be in Canada and have the support for, on I think, the majority of the population. That's excellent. I think from the perspective of you have a unique position where you can call out. That's a really good point. And I've read some, you know, maybe it was one of your reports where I think you you do call out and say discrimination and and inequities and racism are a public health emergency in some respects. And so we have to frame it in that way to address it properly. Shifting a little bit now towards, I guess, the future. So when we look at the state of public health in Canada and from an infrastructure planning perspective, how prepared do you think we are for, dare I say, another pandemic from a capacity and planning perspective, as well from a health and human service workforce perspective? So for example, do we have enough genomic epidemiologists? Like, how prepared are we for the next pandemic that may come? Well, having been through the last two and a half years plus, we have learned a lot, of course. So one has to really think about what is going to be really important to sustain as capacities that we've built for us to be even better prepared for the next pandemic. I don't think any country can be quite prepared for something of this scope and magnitude. It's very difficult to prepare for or eventualities like that. You do still have to learn and adapt. But I think we've already learned a lot that we've 
began to use, say, in the outbreak of monkeypox, which has been declared a public health emergency of international concern by the World Health Organization. And so we were able to move into that response pretty fast. We we're still in the middle of a pandemic. I'm in constant uh, touch with my colleagues across the country. We're used to it. We can escalate pretty fast when we detect another health threat. But it has taught us, of course, about the importance of certain very critical platforms and infrastructures like vaccines. If we and the world's global scientific community hadn't come together in great speed, we wouldn't have had the vaccine within like a year of the viral sequence being uploaded uh, for all of us to work with. And of course, fortunately, we had done some preparedness in order to have some vaccines to start off with for monkeypox. So we know that's a really valuable asset and that at the beginning of any disease outbreak or pandemic, we're going to be thinking, do we have the vaccine or can we manufacture really fast? So I think having the foresighting and the abilities to increase the global, but also the biomedical manufacturing infrastructure domestically, we will be better prepared. So you've heard about some of the beginnings of an increase in capacity uh, for the mRNA vaccine platform by Moderna, for example, and Novavax and the Novavax vaccine infrastructures. We already have some for influenza, but you got to look at not just all the different groups of viruses and whether you know we have done enough work to escalate uh, vaccine production when the time comes, but you also have to build enough flexible infrastructure to deal with what we call disease X, which is the entirely unknown uh, pathogen that might come along. So that's very important. But on the other hand, which is at the beginning of a pandemic, you may not have uh, specific vaccines and treatments, and you rely on people's personal protective habits, if you like. We learn a huge amount, as you can imagine, on the use of masks and uh, personal protective gears. And the importance of ventilation is very important for other aerosolized pathogens. And it's not going to be just important for COVID-19. It'll be important for other respiratory viruses as well. So that is something that can be sustained. Um, and then I think one other concept is that no one is safe until everyone is safe. We kind of talk about that like a bit of a doctrine, but when it comes to global equity and truly global collaborative approaches, we have, of course, some ways to go. And monkeypox, again, is a good example of a virus that has been circulating in uh, other countries, in um, Africa in particular. We hadn't done very much about it until it hit the global north or the west. And so how many times do we have to, you know, relive that experience for the global community to realize that we really do have to build up capacity everywhere. So I think that's really important. And of course, building a highly skilled public health workforce with multiple different disciplines. And not only that, we are never going to be given enough 
positions to hire lots of people. So we have to learn from our ability to access search capacities when we need it. And we learned a lot during this pandemic about that as well, including the work of the Canadian Red Cross, just as an example. You mentioned quite a few things. I think thinking of it and framing this in a way where there's multiple sort of strategies, multiple components to successfully combating a pandemic. There's layers of protection and there's different, I guess, when you look at risk mitigation strategies. So vaccines are part of that, certainly, but there's other behaviors. And you mentioned the X factor, which is very interesting. I think it's something that people may not appreciate, even healthcare providers, that we get into compartmentalized thinking, influenza, RSV, COVID, the virus types, but beyond that, there could be even more. And I think one of the other challenging things is as frontline healthcare providers is sometimes that knowledge translation and things that sometimes we're not taught in some of these professional schools is how to effectively communicate some of this to the patient. I've had a lot of questions this past week about, do I wait for this new upgraded mRNA vaccine with a bivalent? Do I get my booster now, right? So how you can actually use a power of analogy or, you know, in real time, do a risk assessment on that patient. And I think there's certainly, and I'll get to it a little bit, I want to hear your thoughts about the intersection of how healthcare providers can synergize or plug into public health. Just one last question around this is, after this pandemic, do you think this will change the way the Public Health Agency of Canada works because of the learnings in any way of this pandemic? Well, I think I'll just pick up on what you just said. I think the power of communications cannot be underestimated. And the capacity to go- do good risk communications, which is also based on behavioral sciences, which are, we're beginning to leverage. Many scientists and health professionals know a lot of technical knowledge, but is unable to then digest and communicate that to their patients or the general public. So I've always said that the communication is as important as the vaccine and supporting the communities and individuals to change their behavior, which is what you actually need to do when there's no vaccines and no treatments to start off with, is to how do you reduce your risk of getting infected or getting impacted by whichever health crisis we happen to be dealing with. And just the bridge to the fact that the public health agency actually needs more of that capacity, of course. I'm only the sort of pointy end of the communications. There's many, many people working on different channels of communications. I wasn't someone who used a lot of social media ahead of this pandemic because I'm a pretty sort of low-key person in my private life. I'm not someone who was on Facebook incessantly. And adapting to communicating using different social media channels is absolutely vital. Because we also have behavioral science knowledge that those who just follow social media and don't get their information from any other credible source are the ones who believe in mis- and disinformation. So we got to really show up that capacity. For the public health agency, of course, there'll be many lessons learned. And we've been trying to learn lessons as we're going along. Of course, hiring the right mix of multidisciplinary Staff is very important, and you mentioned some of the new kind of skill sets, which 
we had already started building a quite a number of years ago. We were at the forefront of genomics and bioinformatics at our national microbiology lab. And it was because of the foresight of the leadership there that, you know, they, they started hiring these people that you go, who are bioinformaticians? We have no understanding of them. They're working in a little cupboard with, you know, stuff. And they've been absolutely critical and invaluable now, right? And behavioral scientists, but there are many other skill sets that we need to incorporate. Social science is as important as biomedical sciences as well. And understanding the social determinants of health, equity approaches, and how we affect social cohesion is really important ingredient in pandemic preparedness and response. I think the other thing that we did not envisage, maybe prior to this, is our operational capacity and how to right-size that at the end of the pandemic, but able to search. Just as an example, uh, the quarantine service was a very small one. And now we've got massive numbers of people involved in border measures, which has had to scale up really, really fast at the beginning from very, very small team. And now what do we do going forwards? The National Emergency Strategic Stockpile was a very focused stockpile on rare things that provinces and territories don't prepare for, like smallpox or anthrax or health security agents. And we really didn't have a clear mandate to be, for example, supporting the whole country's health care system on supplies. That wasn't really our role. And so what is the role of public health in that context, right? So we had to work with a number of federal government departments in getting anything from swabs to masks to all sorts of things. Not what we were built for as a science-based agency. So that has to be looked at as well after this current experience. And we have to build up our capacity to generate a lot of guidance documents but also the capacity to do knowledge translation, as you said. I think in every public health challenge, there's an acute phase, but there's also a very long, prolonged phase afterwards in terms of the broader impacts of the pandemic and what is our role in that. Clarifying and doing studies on post-COVID condition might be one, in collaboration with many others, while the healthcare system is trying to take care of patients who have been impacted more broadly by the pandemic. And so I think each of the of us have our different roles between public health and the healthcare setting as well. So we could probably look at all sorts of um, approaches to building synergies and cohesion between public health and healthcare. You got my brain firing because I'm thinking about all the possibilities here uh, with all the touch points you mentioned. And I think one key thing I'm so glad you mentioned is I, I love hearing the word behavioral science because I'm a firm believer that we all have cognitive biases, us, our patients, understanding a, what these are and how to activate patients. Leveraging these is so key. You can do a data dump, but at the end of the day, if a patient doesn't resonate or they can't digest it, it means almost nothing. I was talking to a colleague recently about 
explaining a risk of a side effect compared to getting hit by lightning, right? And when you kind of contextualize and compare, the risk of getting hit by lightning is more likely than getting the side effect. Those things like that can really play into how you describe a patient in some examples. And that's excellent. So, I mean, one of the key things of our podcast is that relationship between frontline healthcare providers and public health. And I think you've really nicely sort of talk about how we can, with this awareness, how do we leverage that of the face of what public health does in Canada? Because sometimes all the stuff you do can be in the background and keeping us safe, but we don't know that, you know, public health kind of kept us safe. Yeah. <laughs> and I, one area of, I think, key importance that our listeners want to hear your thoughts about is the role of climate change and public health. You know, we saw last summer extreme weather patterns here in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest, the heat dome, as you were familiar with, an increase in emergency department visits as simple as something as a lack of air conditioners in care homes for our most vulnerable, resulting in numerous deaths in this province. But what role do you think the Public Health Agency of Canada needs to play at the intersection of climate change and public health? Well, stay tuned because my next annual report will be on this very topic. And Public health, as I said, there were very, very complex challenges. And if it's not complicated, it probably isn't in the domain of public health. And I think both public health and the healthcare system, or the health ecosystem, I would sort of think of it that way, all have a role to play. And that ecosystem can consist of the primary care practitioners, the more tertiary, secondary, acute care. But long-term care, home care, that whole continuum of the health system that supports individuals and supports populations, all the way from really health promotion to prevention, of course, to actual then what we call more downstream treatments and supporting people if they actually are suffering from the acute impact of some of the severe weather events. If we use that analogy of that up and down stream, so if you include, if you think of a stream, public health is at the top end trying to ensure no one falls in. But if someone is in the stream, they need to be supported. You may throw them a life jacket or you may have to pull them out from the stream. You may have to actually resuscitate them in some way. And that is absolutely crucial. But every aspect of all the work up and down that stream are equally important. But I do think that if we don't do more uh, health promotion and prevention, we are going to have constant pressure downstream into our emergency rooms and filling up all of our hospital beds. And we've all seen in the news how critical that capacity is at the moment and everyone's feeling overwhelmed. And that's very understandable. But of course, we need as a country to turn our whole mindset much more upstream into keeping people well and healthy and uh, on the prevention side, because we'll be much more resilient towards any health challenges if our population's general health was better. It's the same with an individual patient. So climate change poses a whole range of health impacts to humans, animals, and planetary health. And we've been trying to frame all of this as a one health concept because it, we have critical interactions between humans, animals, and the environment. So with 
climate change and there's going to be increased frequency in extreme heat, flooding, wildfires, air pollution, and some of these really quite evident now impacts. We in the public health agency have tended to focus on infectious diseases, on the, in, the zoonotic diseases, the ones carried by insects and mosquitoes and ticks that are going to spread further under certain climatic conditions. And that's some of the work or the research of the public health agency is already demonstrating, you know, the impact of climate change on vector-borne diseases but it could also be on foodborne and waterborne diseases when there are climatic events. It also impacts chronic diseases. So if you already have cardiorespiratory underlying risk factors, you're going to be more susceptible to some of the climate change impacts, which could be anywhere from wildfire smoke to allergens increasing in the environment and many other things. More broadly, though, it can impact food security for indigenous populations who are uh, living in the north when their whole environment is changing. And the mental health impacts of climate change we're particularly interested in as well. So I do think that the public health system needs to take into account climate change in a broad spectrum of all the work we do from health promotion to prevention to response. And there really is no choice in the matter. We have to adapt because even if we did everything right now in reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and uh, really up our game on the mitigation end, we're still going to be living with these impacts for quite some time and we need to adapt. And so what my report will be focusing on is adaptation from the health side of the equation. And also we might be able to play a role on the mitigation side. But from my perspective, climate action is good for health. And on the reverse, health and public health action is absolutely critical in the context of climate change. Hey. Yeah, that's excellent. So there we go. Dr. Teresa Tam has dropped some hints of her upcoming report, something that you guys should watch out for. But it's a shift in how I think this issue five years ago, even 10 years ago, was not as high a priority for something like public health as it is today, just with what we're experiencing from a global perspective. And one thing I'll add, I was reading a paper about, you know, diseases that were endemic to certain regions because of warmer temperatures in more northern regions, for example, you're seeing a spread of certain vectors to other areas where they were not endemic, which is kind of changing the way we frame our public health guidance as an example. So it's something we'll make sure to send a link once you have it released. As we kind of come towards the end here, we've spoken about quite a few different issues. And for all the early career pharmacists, the early career physicians, whether they be GPs or specialists, our nursing colleagues, in closing, what message do you have for all the early career healthcare providers from across the country tuning in today, the next generation of leaders on the front line and potentially leaders in public health. What does Dr. Tam have to say to them? Well, I think you can all look forward to a very rewarding career. Demanding one maybe, but really rewarding because we really need health professionals and healthcare providers in this country. 
And I certainly look forward to your support as we move forward. And in public health, by the way, we welcome all sorts of disciplines. It doesn't matter if you're a pharmacist, a nurse, a physician, we can convert you into the public health field and change you to be more of the upstream practitioner because it is a, a extremely rewarding uh, career path to be in as well. Think that we all must keep health equity at the core of everything that we do. Canada is in many ways a very privileged country. We have resources that many don't have. Our healthiest are at probably some of the healthiest populations in the world. It's the gap between those who are um, not uh, being well supported, those who are experiencing poverty, uh, homelessness. If we can bring their health and optimize their health, we will be one of the most healthy countries in the world. And that's what we should aspire to be. And I think healthcare uh, providers everywhere can promote a diverse Diver diversity and inclusion in a culturally safe and trauma-informed health system. We've got to be the change. And we need to all learn about reconciliation and how to decolonize our health systems and make sure that we support self-determination of First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities. So I think um, we moving forward into a challenging and complex future, but I have no doubt and I've, I'm, I'm totally hopeful because I've met a lot of young uh, health professionals and they're all passionate, dedicated, and we just need to look after each other, make sure uh, we take care of each other, learn about mental health for yourself, not just to look after your patients, and uh, then you are going to have a really exciting uh, future ahead of you. Those are uh, words well said. We appreciate that. And I think, you know, like you say, this is just the start in terms of uh, some of the work that needs to be done. And this theme will continue on in terms of how we can, from a frontline perspective, from a public health perspective, how we can continue to synergize, look at addressing any unmet needs and seeing problems from different lenses. So we hope as the months move on, we're happy to kind of uh, help facilitate any of those conversations as needed. And we pre really appreciate your time, Dr. Tam. If you're ever in Vancouver, let us know. We'll grab a coffee with you and discuss some of these things further. I think we just touched the surface, to be very honest. Yes. So we appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. And I wish you all the best. And Maxi Miigwech. Special thanks to Dr. Teresa Tam. Check out the links in the podcast show notes for more info on Dr. Tam's report. Yeah.